As we turn our attention to the text for today's sermon, I encourage you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read verses 17 and 18, and then we'll skip down to um, 33 through 37. So join me with Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And in verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Pray with me now. Lord Jesus, open our hearts and minds, Heavenly Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we may hear your word with joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Back before Spotify and Apple Music and other streaming type things, before MP3 players, before CDs, even before cassette players, there was, anybody remember? Oh, too far. What'd you say? Eight-track players. My dad had one in his Chevy pickup. Mostly he preferred country music and oldies from the 50s and 60s, but uh, he had a couple of eight-track tapes of the Eagles. And I remember riding in that truck on the way to the hardware store or to the city landfill with tree limbs and old wood and stuff in the back of the truck. I can still hear Don Henley singing about one of these nights and telling you not to draw the Queen of Diamonds because, boy, she'll beat you if she's able. Now, here's a song I distinctly remember hearing on those trips. Take a listen. You can. I never understood the lyrics, you can't hide your lion eyes, just as I hadn't a clue what a tequila sunrise was about. (laughs) See, I thought Glenn Fry was singing about a lion, you know, like one of these. (laughs) And I thought, what do do lion's eyes look like? Maybe a lion's mane, I could totally envision that, but what's so special about a lion's eyes? I remember a tiger's eyes, I remember the marble tiger's eyes, but no lion eyes. Since I'm on the subject, what is a witch-a woman? (laughs) Well, several years back, the United Press International reported a story about this prayer by the chaplain of the Kansas State Senate. I think it could have been prayed in any state or, for that matter, our nation's senate. It goes like this. Omniscient Father, or all-knowing Father, help us to know who is telling the truth. One side tells us one thing and the other just the opposite. 
And if neither side is telling the truth, we would like to know that too. And if each side is telling half the truth, would you give us the wisdom to put the right halves together? In Jesus' name, amen. I'm not sure that God responds to cynical prayers. His ear is usually bent toward the prayers of the sincere and humble. In any case, the crowd that this chaplain was addressing wasn't all that different from the crowd that gathered on the hill to hear Jesus teach. What makes them similar? I'm glad you asked. You see, both crowds were filled with liars. George MacDonald was a Scottish author and minister who greatly influenced uh, writers like C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. In the late 1800s, MacDonald wrote this to his son. He said, I always try, I think I do, to be truthful. All the same, I tell a great many lies. If you're like me, you can identify with this admission. Of course, we're usually aware of when we're not telling the truth, but the worst thing, and maybe the most frightening, is how easily we slip unconsciously into telling slightly less than the truth. It's a combination, I think, of our deceitful nature and the, the widespread deceptiveness of the culture we live in. So in looking at this passage in Matthew 5 that we just heard, it's noteworthy that Jesus brings up the subject of vows and oaths and honesty and integrity in in general immediately after speaking about lust, adultery, and divorce. And by the way, you may have noticed we're taking these a little out of order because Pastor Dan couldn't be here here today, and so he drew the short straw and and has to speak on divorce next week. So (laughs) come back for that one. Uh, What we're going to look at today is the traditional teaching that Jesus addresses here and then how his teaching is radically different. And finally, we'll consider the implications of Christ's teaching. So what we see in the Old Testament concerning making and keeping vows is uh, occasionally negative, but mostly positive. In the ancient song and prayer book that is the Psalms, the poets spoke often concerning vows. Psalm 50 says, Make thankfulness your sacrifice to God and keep the vows you made to the Most High. Psalm 76, Make vows to the Lord your God and keep them. So vows were encouraged. Moses, for instance, called the Israelites to love and obedience. Look at Deuteronomy 10. It says, Fear the Lord your God and live in a way that pleases Him. And love him and serve him with all your heart and soul. You must fear the Lord your God and worship him and cling to him. Your oaths must be in his name alone. And then we see later God addresses the nations surrounding Israel through the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 12. If these nations truly learn the ways of my people and if they learn to swear by my name, saying, as surely as the Lord lives, then they will be given a place among my people. So vows and oaths, are, are, they're more or less commitments. And when they're, when they're mentioned negatively in the Old Testament, it usually involves an oath that is made foolishly or in haste or both. Any commitment that we make, as we'll look at, must be made with forethought and integrity. But what was worse than an impulsive vow was not following through. Vows were to be kept. Look at Leviticus 19. Do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. 
Numbers 30, a man who makes a vow, or a woman, a man who makes a vow to the Lord or makes a, a pledge under oath must never break it. He must do exactly what he said he would do. Deuteronomy 23, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, be prompt in fulfilling whatever you promised him. For the Lord your God demands that you promptly fulfill all your vows or you will be guilty of sin. This is really what was meant by the fourth of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20 says, You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse His name. What God is saying here is, don't you bring me into a vow when you have no intention of following through. Because I am a God who follows through. I say what I mean. I mean what I say. See, in Jesus' time, the traditional biblical teaching was abused. Some rabbis, uh, rabbis referring to Jewish teachers of the law, some rabbis were teaching that an oath was not binding if it did not include God's name or, or, or directly imply God's name. In fact, the, the Mishnah, which is a, a, an edited record of the complex body of material known as the oral law, their Mishnah devotes an entire section called Shabuth on when oaths are or are not binding. Basically, the oral law degenerated into a system of when you could and when you could not lie. In Jesus' time, frivolous oaths were continually mingled with everyday speech. They would say things like we read. They would say things like, buy your life if I don't do this, or buy my beard if I don't whatever. May I never see the comfort of Jerusalem if... So they would say these things often. I know it sounds odd and foreign to us, which, which it is foreign. So we say other things, and I'll get to those. In essence, it became common practice to convince someone you were telling the truth while lying by bringing in some person or eminent object into reference. Uh, author R. Kent Hughes says this produced a profound spiritual schizophrenia schizophrenia. I'm not telling the truth, but I'm not really lying. It's like children who cross their fingers, believing it invalidates whatever promise they're making or, or excuses whatever white lie they're telling. But here we see Jesus ruling out making vows by referencing people or objects. Why? Why does he do this? Well, it's because God stands behind everything. Theologian John Stott says, Jesus begins by arguing that the question of the formula used in making vows is a total irrelevance, and in particular, that the Pharisees' distinction between formulae which mention God and those which do not is entirely artificial. You see, the whole of creation is God's, so you can't refer to any part of it without referring ultimately to God. One commentary notes, Jesus teaches that all oaths invoke God's witness equally. Just as heaven, earth, and Jerusalem belong to God, so do the hairs on our heads. Although we can dye our hair, we have no genuine control over its aging. Maybe that's why I just never decided to dye my hair. <laughs> I'll just let it do what it does. All oaths, he says, implicitly call God to witness because everything that exists was made by God. For Jesus, for Jesus, no aspect of life except sin is purely secular. 
Now remember, Jesus is talking here in his, uh, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. He, he's talking about what life is like in God's kingdom. What does it look like for a citizen of heaven to live and interact with other citizens of heaven? As well as what does it look like to live and interact with those who are not yet part of God's kingdom? Jesus is saying that kingdom people do not need oaths because their word is always truth. He says simply, let your yes be yes, your no be no. But see, the the need for oath-taking and swearing, we might say things like, I I swear on my mother's grave, or cross my heart and hope to die. We say these things because the need for oaths comes from, from the fact that we are liars. Look at how uh, this 20th century German theologian, Helmut Thielke, put it. He says, whenever I utter the formula, I swear by God, I am really saying, now I'm going to mark off an area of absolute truth and put walls around it to cut it off from the muddy floods of untruthfulness and irresponsibility that ordinarily overruns my speech. In fact, I'm saying even more than this. I'm saying that people are expecting me to lie from the start. And just because they are counting on my lying, I have to bring up these big guns of oaths and words of honor. The muddy floods of untruthfulness and irresponsibility. Jesus calls calls us away from cheap language. I'd like you to to take a moment and and consider, what what if we each one of us, what if we were sincere in everything we say? What if we were sincere in everything we sing? There's a a debate going on in worship circles, uh, discussions of church worship professionals, people who like to think about things and The debate is seeking to answer the conundrum of why fewer people in churches sing, if in fact they do or don't, whatever it is. They're referring to the golden age of when everyone in the congregation sang, whenever that was. Pick your decade or century. Well, there are a lot of reasons why people do and and don't sing. And I could cite matters of song style, vocal range, complexity of melody, and accompaniment, Repetition, too little, too much. Volume level of the sound system, whether too loud, not loud enough, so on. But really for me and our planning teams here, what we're thinking about more is how can we get people to mean what they sing? Words that go on that screen, we don't want them just to go out your mouth and never register in here prayers that we pray. We don't want them to just go in here and out. We want them to register in here. That's why we're providing you with more things, and we will continue with life share with prayers and songs so that these, you can think about these words. What do these mean? Well, anyway, that's a discussion for another day. Let's consider the implication of Jesus' teaching here. Are we never supposed to take oaths? Some people adhere to an absolutist interpretation, such as the Moravians, the Quakers, the Anabaptists. Uh, some of those, uh, they, we, can, we can trace our own denominational roots to some of them. The, the context here 
however, argues against an absolutist understanding, meaning that we're, we're supposed to be prohibited from all vows of every type. Because, you see, Jesus' prohibitions seem to regard common, everyday conversations. Take a look. See, during the sham of a trial before his death, Jesus honored what's called the official oath of adjuration from Caiaphas, the high priest. We see in Matthew 26, uh, verse 62. It says, Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Well, aren't you going to answer these charges? Why do you have, what do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus remained silent. Then the high priest said to him, I demand, in the name of the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus finally breaks silence. He, he, he responds to the oath. Jesus says, you have said it, and in the future you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. As soon as the high priest brings the name of the living God into the situation, Jesus says, you don't understand. I am standing before you. I don't look like him, but one day I will return. So Jesus responds to that, that swearing, that oath. We see examples of vows in the Apostle Paul's writing. 2 Corinthians 1 says, I call upon God as my witness that I am telling the truth. Romans 1, God whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son is my witness. How constantly I remember you in prayer. God himself makes an oath to Abraham. We see in Genesis 22, this is after Abraham proved his faithfulness in offering his son Isaac to God for a burnt offering, which seemed completely ludicrous and was, but he responded. This is what the Lord says, because you have obeyed me and have not withheld even your son, your only son, I swear by my own name that I will certainly bless you. John Stott comments on Jesus' statement back in Matthew, as well as this passage in Genesis 22. He says, if swearing is forbidden, why has God himself used oaths in Scripture? To this, I think we must answer that the purpose of the divine oaths was not to increase his credibility, but to elicit and confirm our faith. So, should we or should we not ever take an oath or, or make a vow? Well, there are times for vows. In baptism, we vow to surrender our lives to God and to the service of His kingdom and to live in a, mather, in, in a manner worthy of His calling. Covenant members of this church commit to the, the authority of Scripture, of God's Word, and to maintaining and working toward a close relationship with God, to giving generously of our time and other resources among other commitments. And certainly vows are a huge part of marriage and the wedding ceremony. You see, the vows that we commit to in marriage will sustain us through the difficult seasons of marriage. When you don't feel love for your spouse, when, when, when you hardly like them, or if we're honest, when we despise them, in those moments, those scary moments, you'll find that your commitment, that the vow you made to each other, when it feels like the ship is going down, the vow you made to each other, and most importantly, the vow you made to God, will keep you from going under.
If you cling to the vow and stay true to it and to God and to one another, the Lord will see you through. He will keep you from sinking. But if you renege on your promise, you'll never discover the joy ahead, the calm after the storm. So the implication from this passage is that oath-taking, while it is permitted, is not encouraged, primarily because it shouldn't be necessary. Kingdom people don't need such devices. Our commitment to truthfulness will be evident to everyone. We don't need to emphasize that we're telling the truth in a particular situation because we always do. You see, ours is a generation obsessed with superlatives. Everything is the best, the greatest. Everything is always the best, best night ever, best friend forever. Nothing is merely funny. Everything is hilarious, LOL. Though that doesn't suffice, it must be, have you heard of this one? R-O-F-L. Rolling on the floor laughing. (laughs) We type those letters, or some people do. Type those letters into our phones. But do we actually do it? I mean, are we rolling on the floor laughing? I've only rolled on the floor and laughed, I think, maybe once in my life. I was a teenager. And just, I don't know what, the, what it was, but I, ne- I never put that into a phone. Roll on the floor and laugh. It's just figurative, though, right? It's just figurative language. Well, consider this. In a music score, in, in sheet music, a composer draws in a little... F. Anybody know what the F stands for? Forte, which means loud. Forte, meaning loud. Or they might draw in a, a double F. How about that? That's a good idea. They're double forte. It was cute. No, it's, 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 it's fortissimo. Fortissimo, which means really loud or double loud. It, it, okay, how about triple, triple F? Any ideas? Well, you start to it hurt your ears, yeah. It starts to sound like you have a lisp, but you use a fortississimo. And you could keep going, fortississimo, just till you, till you run out of room with all the Fs. I mean, seriously loud. But, but you see, if a score is littered with Fs everywhere, but with scant Ps, anybody know what a P is? What's that? Quiet. That's what it means. It means piano, actually. That's where we get the name for that instrument, piano forte, because the idea is that you can play soft and loud on it. Some instruments you can only play loud. Some instruments you can only play soft. The beauty of the piano is soft and loud. So if you've got a score with all these Fs everywhere, but with just very few Ps, the Fs don't mean anything because it's just loud. And what would you probably do? Just turn it down. <laughs> if it's, so it doesn't mean anything. Think of it another way if music doesn't float your boat. In baseball, the change-up. What's a change-up? Baseball fans out there? What is it? Off-speed pitch. So it's exactly what it says it is. It's a change-up. So a pitcher can throw 95 all day long, and eventually the good hitters will catch up to it, right? And then they just put the bat out there, it goes over the fence. Well, a good pitcher will throw in something off speed, a change-up, so as to keep the hitter off balance. I love watching a, a, a fast 
very fast throwing pitcher, and, and then you see the throw, throw a change up, and the guy looks ridiculous because he's just he's swinging, and the ball's still coming. It's still so anyway. So the idea is to keep them off balance, right? So what does all this mean? What am I talking about? Well, the trouble with superlatives is they lose their intensity when they're overused. When we overuse phrases like I promise or I swear to God, certain situations definitely call for vows and oaths, but not typical everyday conversation. I promise loses its meaning so that it carries little weight when you say, I promise for better for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish. There's a word that has completely lost its meaning in our day. I used its opposite a minute ago. Um, the opposite is figurative. What is the opposite of figurative? Anybody know? Literally. You hear that word a lot, don't you? Literally. Well, in a TV show called The Newsroom, Millionaire media mogul Leona Lansing attempts to fend off a hostile takeover by her ex-husband's children. Take a look. You know what happened last month without anybody noticing? This is for real. Webster's Dictionary expanded the definition of the word literally to include the way it's commonly misused. So the thing is, we no longer have a word in the English language that means literally. I mean, literally doesn't have a synonym. So we're going to have to find the Latin word for it and use it. But see, I don't know any Latin. So when I say that I am literally going to set fire to this building with you in it before I hand over the keys to it, you don't know if I'm speaking figuratively or literally. <laughs> There's a phrase the kids like to use these days that gets under my skin almost as much as the misuse of the word literally. They like to say, to be honest. To be honest, I don't really want to go there. To be honest, I'm kind of tired. To be honest. Why must we preface a statement or an opinion, very often an unwelcome one, why must, why must we preface the statement with, to be honest? This would seem to imply we aren't always honest, wouldn't it? Scratch everything else I just said, to be honest. It implies that we regularly meander between truth and deceit. You see, we humans are fantastic storytellers. That's even a euphemism for lying, isn't it? Telling stories? I'm not lying. Just making up stories. Are you making up stories? Are you lying? You're, you're writing some fiction? We hyperbolize. We exaggerate. We embellish the truth. Why do we do this? Why do we embellish the truth? Why do we tell stories? Why do we lie? Very often, it's out of the fear of being discovered. I don't want you to know things about me, so I'll pretend to be something I'm not. Or I'll pretend, to be, I'll pretend not to be something I am. I want to return to George MacDonald's admission in full. He says, I always try, I think I do, to be truthful. All the same, I tell a great many petty lies. Example, things that mean one thing to myself, though another to other people. But I do not think lightly of it. 
Where I am more often wrong is in, ta- is in tacitly pretending I hear things which I do not, especially jokes and good stories, the point of which I always miss. But seeing everyone else laugh, I laugh too for the sake of not looking a fool. My respect for the world's opinion is my greatest stumbling block, I fear. We lie so others won't figure out who we really are or aren't. I remember, um, we, many of you know we, we moved from Arizona. That My wife and I grew up in Arizona. We moved to, to Ohio uh, about 16 years ago, Toledo originally, and then the past seven or eight years here. Uh, whenever I would mention I'm from, I'm from Arizona, people would say, oh, the Grand Canyon. Isn't it grand? And I'd say, oh, yeah, it's great. Uh, Sedona, beautiful. Just the red sand, beautiful. I'm like, oh, yeah. Totally lying. I grew up in Arizona, never saw the Grand Canyon. Never once. Five hours away. I mean, why would we go there? It's just a big hole, so. But why would I do that? Why? It's silly. I you know, I've never seen the Grand Canyon. Probably because they'd be like, what are you? It's, an, it's like a, is it a national wonder or like a world wonder? I don't even know. It's something huge. So it, it seems so silly. But a few years ago, uh, several years back, uh, we were back home for a trip, and we took a road trip out that time. And so Cindy and I, she, she had never seen it either, but to my knowledge, she never lied about not having seen it. But so we decided to go and, and um, stop and see the Grand Canyon, because it was ridiculous that we hadn't. So it was about 45 minutes out of the way, but we figured it would be worth it. Well, we left kind of late. So we got to the Grand Canyon just in time for sunset, which was beautiful for all 10 minutes of it. That's all we saw. That's all I've seen of the Grand Canyon. But now, I don't have to lie. It's beautiful. Beautiful Grand Canyon. Sedona, I'm sure it's great. You see, Jesus is calling us to truthfulness, in part to save us from the fear of impressing others. If I can be real with you, then I am really free to be myself or rather, to become the person God wants to make me into. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Since you've heard about Jesus, verse 21, since you've heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature, your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. So stop telling lies. Let's tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all parts of the same body, referring to the church. You see, radical truth is greatly needed in the church. Jesus prayed for our unity, but distrust breaks unity, doesn't it? Paul told the Ephesian believers elsewhere to speak the truth in love. Why? so that we would grow in every way more and more like Christ. Why are we afraid to be real with others in our faith family? Can't we just admit that we don't have it all together? We have the appearance that we are. I often put on a tie when I preach, which isn't that often, so I always have to try to remember how to tie a tie. And this isn't like Josh's 
full disclosure last week, but I, I've watched videos on how to tie a tie because I forget. But it's the, it's the full wins or not. It's complicated. And, and, and so for a while there, I had to keep watching the video, trying not to awaken Cindy, you know, because I'm putting on this tie. I'm watching a video on how to do it. Seems ridiculous, doesn't it? But I have to say, it's a good, it's a good knot. In fact, the guy in the video says that it helps you to exude confidence. And I'm feeling that. I'm feeling that. <laughs> it is tight, though. It is really tight. I couldn't hit those high notes earlier. Why can't we admit that we don't have it together? That my anger gets the better of me sometimes. That I'm impatient and proud, boastful. I know my own sinful proclivities, and so as a commentary on Pastor Josh's full disclosure sermon last week, I, I asked a friend years ago to, to um, take my phone and input a, a code for restrictions that serve as guardrails for me in my pursuit of holiness. I would be stupid not to have those safeguards. You would be too. My friend prays for me, and I pray for him regularly. It was funny, I, I, I messaged Josh because I was going to read the post that he, he posted on LifeShare, um, a, a follow-up blog post about his sermon concerning lust last week. And, and I, I tapped on the link, and, and um, Safari says, uh, restrictions won't let you view this website. <laughs> like, I'm sure it was a great post, Josh, but restrictions won't let me read it. So he's like, I think you'll be all right. <laughs> See, I want, to, I, I want to grow more like Christ, and I, so I need to be truthful with, about myself with other people, not pretending to be something I'm not. For the church to be who God is calling us to be, we need to be truthful with one another. Radical truthfulness is also needed by the world. First Peter 2 says, Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior they will give honor to God when he judges the world. You see, deep down, people, everybody longs to escape pretense. Honesty and integrity will set us apart. Again, the, the German theologian, Theolica, the avoidance of one small fib, he says, may be a stronger confession of faith than a whole Christian philosophy championed in lengthy, forceful discussion. In other words, our truthful testimony, our truthful words will have a greater impact than having all our theological ducks in a row. People are drawn to truth because corruption and lies plague our entire government and politi political system. Fake news. What is and what isn't? What lies are we being told? What are, what are we not being told? Can anyone be believed? Radical truthfulness is needed by the world. For Jesus, words were sacred. They were outward signs of an inward condition. Look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 33. A tree is identified by its fruit, he says. If a tree is good, its fruit will be good. If a tree is bad, its fruit will be bad. And then speaking to the religious leaders, he says, You brood of snakes. How could evil men like you speak what is good and right? For whatever is in your heart determines what you say. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart, and an evil person produces evil things 
from the treasury of an evil heart. A truthful spirit, Jesus is saying, yields an increasing veracity of speech, a truthfulness in everyday language. Further, and this is terrifying, we will all give an account for everything, every word we will have spoken. Continue in Matthew. I tell you this, you must give an account on Judgment Day for every idle word you speak. The words you say will either acquit you or condemn you. This being the case, we might be wise to speak quite a bit less. Or maybe text a little bit less. Or comment a little bit less. Proverbs 10.19 says, Too much talk leads to sin. Be sensible. Turn your phone off. Keep your mouth shut. We must strive for accuracy in everything we say. We must not be careless with the truth. We need to guard our words, knowing every dishonest word will be revealed for what it was. We are to associate with, to identify with Jesus, who is the truth. Matthew 5 says, just say a simple yes. A simple yes, I will. No, I won't. Anything beyond this is from the evil one. Some translations say this is from the evil one, and others say this comes from evil. So either dishonesty originates from the evil in our own hearts or from the evil one who Jesus called a liar and the father of lies. Or perhaps it's both, from Satan and the deception in our hearts. But when we cling to Christ, who is the truth, we cast off deceit and pretense. John 8 says, Jesus said to the people who believed him, You are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings, and you will know the truth, and that truth will set you free. We're to, be, we're to remain faithful. Jesus' audience included those who swore to statements and commitments they had no intention of following through on. For us to truly be his disciples, we must commit to him and his teachings. If you said a prayer one day, to accept God's gift of grace in the form of Jesus' sacrifice. But if you're honest and were to examine whether you've been faithful to follow him, then I encourage you to, coming full circle, come down from your fences and open the gate. Move out of isolation and commit to Christ and the church to help you grow. Because we are human and we are marred by sin, we will not always remain faithful. We will be tempted to lie for a host of reasons. At times we'll surrender to the Holy Spirit's power and and he will enable us to be truthful. But at other times we will do as poet Sir Walter Scott penned, we will weave a tangled web of deceit. How fickle our hearts. How fickle our hearts, but how faithful a God we worship and serve. Numbers 23 says, God is not a man, he doesn't lie. He is not human, and so he does not change his mind. Has he ever spoken and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried it through? God is faithful. The longer and more closely you follow Jesus, the more you realize his faithfulness, even in the times when it seems he isn't near. It's in those moments that we trust in his word and recall his trustworthiness in the past. I like how Psalm 107 begins and ends. Look at this. Psalm 107, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. And then he finishes, those who are wise will take all this to heart 
If you want to know what all this is, read Psalm 107. Those who are wise will take all this to heart. They will see in our history the faithful love of the Lord. What would it be like to live transparently, to live without hiding, to live honestly? I'd like to play a song for you. This is going to be our response, sort of. So I hope that you'll consider these questions. What would it be like for me to live transparently, without hiding, to to live honestly? This song is, is ironic, so I hope you can bear with the lyrics. Before I play it for you, I'd like to pray. Father, we need your grace to be the people that you call us to be, to be truthful people, to be people who follow through with, on the, with the things that we say we will do, the commitments that we make as husbands and wives, as your disciples, as fathers and mothers and children. Lord, help us to be your people. In the power of the Spirit, we pray.